and welcome back to the Well Projects Leadership Exchange podcast. The Well Projects Leadership Exchange is a series connecting thought leaders in the HIV community to explore one another's work, activism, and personal experiences. This series brings together cis and trans women and others who uplift women's voices across the HIV community in dialogue. On today's episode, the Well Projects Community Advisory Board member, Masanya Trailer and WRI member, Dazan Dixon-Jalo, talk about serving Black women living with and vulnerable to HIV and the ways in which global and domestic advocacy work can inform each other. Welcome to the Well Projects Leadership Exchange. My name is Lasagna Trailer. I am on the Community Advisory Board for the global nonprofit, The Well Project. And I would like to introduce to you all today, Ms. Dazan Dixon Jalo. <laughs> Did I say it right? Perfect. <laughs> so, Design, would you give us the pleasure of introducing yourself? Well, it's my pleasure because I'm so excited to be with you. I am Dazon Dixon Jallo. I am the founder and president of Sister Love in Atlanta, as well as the founder and president of Sister Love International in South Africa, originally from Fort Valley, Peach County, Georgia. And um, what other little tidbits? I am a H, I'm all about the HBCU life. So I am an alumna of Spelman College. And I also got a, a graduate degree at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And yeah, I've been with Sister Love since the beginning. We turned 32 in July. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing this work in the reproductive health rights and justice field. Trying to do the math, 37 years? Yeah, something like that. Started when I, I was I, two and a half. <laughs> I hope I don't make you feel too far gone when I start talking about my age. <laughs> I don't. I love it because, you know, I just remember I started Sister Love when I was 24. So I'm still, you know, 24 and 30 something. Well, the reason I've, I've done a this is my second leadership exchange. And the first one that I did was with um, a lady by the name of Vignetta Charles. And it was my first time ever meeting her. And that time I got to discuss. Um, youth and you know youth is a passion of mine because I started as a youth Mm -hmm. and I have children so I'm still involved with young people and it has always been a passion of mine but this time I get to interview you and the reason why I asked to be able to interview you is because I really look up to you and I admire your legacy that you've one created and the one that you will leave behind And I I think that just by living right here um, with you in Atlanta, serving women, not just women living with HIV, but women as a whole, um, I thought it would be very unique to be able to have a documented, published (laughs) interview exchange with you as the leader and mentor that you are for me. So that is the reason why I wanted to interview you. And let's see, would you mind sharing why you may have wanted to interview me in exchange? Well, 
really the main thing is it was asked and I don't remember telling Masonya no in my life. So I don't think I would, but um, any opportunity to share the learning, especially intergenerational is really powerful. And you bring that for me and just to have a chance to have this conversation because some of this is going to be like where we were and where we are. So I really like that because I think that your journey is so powerful. It's fascinating. It is meaningful for so many different people who understand not just what it's about with the HIV story, but what it's about being black and female, dealing with chronic stuff, dealing with you know, all the things that go on in our lives and in our world and still be not just resilient, but be resistant and be revolutionary and make change happen no matter what happens to you. And that is why, because it fascinates me. I think you fascinate me. So that's it. And you're oh one of my God. babies and why wouldn't oh I? Have? <laughs> and I'm going to use this one on you since you had all the R's in there. I'm nothing more than a reflection. And so it is. There it is. I show. So oh, let's get started. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I listen. You know, as a young person, you know, a lot of times our elders think that we're not listening because we're not reacting immediately on what was said or talked to us. But it eventually it's rooted in us and it takes time for it to get watered. And, and soiled and grown. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's, it took some time, but I do utilize that word uh, when people compliment me. And I learned that from you. I learned that from you um, doing an interview with you. Mm -hmm. I remember that. So I, it, I, and, and it sticks with me. It helps me, it helps me a lot. So I love you and I, I so appreciate you. Um, well, with that being said, can you describe how and why you got started in the HIV field? Yeah. So it's a funny, there's, there's the real part of the story, which is, you know, this sort of trajectory from a particular place that I would not have been able to predict. But when I go back on it and I tell the story all the time, people say, so how, what got you started? And my first answer is always Rock Hudson. And, you know, that usually gets you that Scooby-Doo kind of, er, what? I don't understand that. Especially if it's from young people who don't even know who Rock Hudson is, right? Yeah, who is Rock Hudson? <laughs> exactly. Right. So let me start out there. <laughs> so Rock Hudson uh, was a white guy who was an A-list actor. And the best way I can explain it to people who don't know who he was and this is going to get old, too, because this guy now, since he's my age, is also going to be not known by the Zennials at some point. But the way I give it is that so Rock Hudson was like the Brad Pitt of the 50s and 60s. He was the leading man in all of the best movies kind of thing. And all of the leading ladies wanted to play opposite him and be his supporting whatever in their movies, including Elizabeth Taylor, who actually then started an AIDS organization because one of her dearest friends, Rock Hudson, uh, disclosed his status. But on the day that Rock Hudson told the world that he had AIDS, um, and that was in July of 1985, and it's odd that it's actually the same as Sister Love's birthday years later, but uh, he announced his AIDS diagnosis. And I, at the time, was working at the Feminist Women's Health Center here in Atlanta. 
I was actually answering phones that day when the local AIDS organization, Aid Atlanta, called because for whatever reason, once Rock Hudson made that announcement, now all of a sudden women's ears are perked up and they're very much concerned about AIDS in their lives. I started going, well, what did that have to do, y'all? Because evidently they didn't associate Rock being gay and having AIDS at that time and should not have had to, quite frankly, because that's a stereotype that we've still been trying to get rid of. But in that day, that's what it was, because in a, in a guy like that disclosing his AIDS diagnosis, he was also kind of sort of disclosing his uh, sexual identity. That's not the same for magic. That's another conversation. So but anyway, when that happened, even when they called us at the health center and they called us because they figured we might have some idea. We didn't have anything. We didn't have any clue. AIDS wasn't even on the radar. And this was at a reproductive health clinic. That in and of itself was a problem. So that's really how I got started because we went and volunteered over at Aid Atlanta to help them put together a women's prevention program. And we created a lot of stuff with them. I volunteered with them for a couple of years until they got a new executive director who had no love for the women's issues, the women's stories. He didn't care. And I say that very clearly because it's the truth um, and uh, dropped it and we picked it up at he dropped the whole program. So uh, we picked it up at my organization and that's how long I've been doing this work. If I threw in the pre, um, the prelude to that part of the story, when I was uh, between my first and second year at Spelman College, I had the amazing privilege of being on campus at the moment when Billy Avery and so many women hosted the very first ever conf national conference on Black women's health issues, and it was on my campus. And I got swept up into that movement, and I have been a member and a part of that Black women's health movement ever since. And when HIV came along and the clinic where I was working didn't see it as a priority, maybe because it wasn't impacting middle-class white feminists the way it was impacting Black women from my neighborhood, uh, that showed me that this was going to be a different kind of journey because this particular problem, this AIDS issue at that time was all we had the language for. This AIDS issue was obviously a black women's issue and it was a black women's sexual and reproductive health issue as much if not more than it was a sexually transmitted disease. So that's how I got started and that's changed so much over time, um, but the trajectory of intersecting HIV and sexual and reproductive health and rights and now justice has, has sturdied and steadied my pathway the entire time. So that's where I was and that's where I still am. Oh, wow. So I, I will say, I didn't know about Rock Hudson and your reason for getting started. And I was not fully aware of um, how Aid Atlanta's executive director at that time wasn't focused on women's issues at all and how that is perpetuated to this day. Yeah. And it helps me to understand why um, women's services are a challenge there as well as why it's a challenge for youth because if that's where the focus started, that's where the root is and that's where the community built out from. So it makes more sense now. And I think it's amazing um, and wonderful that, that you chose to ensure that women have a space 
and a voice around it all. And I get really excited hearing you talk about the Black Women's Health Imperative um, and their history and learning about it. And I, I once again, learned about it from you. Um, <laughs> and I can't wait till I get just a little bit stronger so I can do a little more with them. I'm, I'm itching for it. I love yeah. it. I love yeah, it. I love so it. They're doing the Black Women's Health Imperative. And I'm glad that they're back in Atlanta, so to speak. They're just doing so many amazing things. And as a matter of fact, you know, the mother house where we are in the West End was the original home of the National Black Women's Health Project. No, I did not know that. I did that, not know that. Right. That's where they were. Um, and they uh, just to bring it forward as I can help that a little bit. And, and then I'll ask you, you know, if you even recall this part of it, but um, the beauty about that situation with Aid Atlanta back at that time was that executive director was short-lived because he wasn't just not into the women's thing. He just actually wasn't a good director at all. He was horrible, quite frankly, for the organization. Okay. He was terrible. They had to get rid of so, but anyway, that actually opened, however, the door and that alignment moment to bring Sandy Thurman in. So she followed that executive director and she was the one who set Aid Atlanta on the path, right? And what she recognized, because I went to her, my burgeoning, my emerging board chair at the time, Sabrina Sojourner, who's now in DC. And I went to Sandy and we sat in front of her and we wanted a fiscal sponsor. We wanted to just get started, just leaving the health center. And she didn't bat an eye because they had nothing for women and she recognized that. And it was all, it was a perfect quid pro quo. If you can take care of the women who are calling us, who are needing case management, who are needing linkage to care, who are needing to know about HIV and get prevention information and all of that, we will be your fiscal sponsor. And then we were like, well, we need some office space too. And she didn't blink. She said, absolutely. And that's where we were incubated for the next three years. So it took and a woman, it took a woman <laughs> to hear you. Right. That's right. It took it's a woman, wow. here and to recognize what she needed in the organization for the community. And we served that purpose until a few years later when we per took our first rental space in the same building, the mother right. house the that basement. we now own. <laughs> Which I think is so dope because the mother house is actually a house. It's a house. It's actually a house. All of our facilities are houses. Yeah. Even in South Africa, we're in a house. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, and it's called Umzi Watando, which means basically, which means the house of love. So it's the love house, just like our headquarters here. But just in what language is that again? Umzi Watando is in Kosa. In Kosa? Kosa. It's Kosa. X, X H O S A. Kosa. Yes. Okay. I'm going to have to practice that one. <laughs> the X and the A. I'll have to practice those clicks. Yes. <laughs> I heard the click when you did it too. I heard it. I was, whoa. Okay. Wow. I didn't know I, that I, either. I, I, for That's all cool. of my Tulsa people, I hope I got it right. <laughs> the entire staff, actually, the entire staff of Sister Love, it, nothing is an accident, but it wasn't our intent. But our entire staff is also Tulsa. We're, we're all from the East. They're all from the Eastern Cape. So. Oh, we'll get wow. into that. That's a fascinating story already. Trust. So, okay, before we get there, let me go yes. back. Yes. From where you started and how you started Sister Love and mm -hmm. just working from and with Aid Atlanta, yeah. what keeps you going today? It ain't over. 
<laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, seriously, interview I'm, done. I am, I'm in it to win it. I'm, I am in this until it's over, even if I'm finished before it is. I'm just here. It's uh, funny but that really, you said that because when you say it's not over, you're in it until the end. One of the models or mantras that I use is until the last one. Until the last one. That's mm-hmm. absolutely that's right. And for me, it has uh, the there's there's that thing, which is when you know your purpose, once you figured it out, once the universe, once God has given you the vision to know this is why you're here, this is what is expected of me while I'm here. Anything and anytime, it doesn't matter where I do the work, it's about the work itself. But anytime I am not doing this work to uh, affect the best of what we need with regard to sexual reproductive health rights and justice, I ain't living because that means I have stepped off of my life path and I am doomed. So I am in this because it's what I'm supposed to be doing here and it's what motivates me. What inspires me, of course, is the fact that uh, I'm working with so many amazing souls who are faced with HIV and any of the other life-impacting, life-affecting challenges or traumas that they live with, they're gonna live with that for the rest of their entire lives. And for those of us who are doing this work and are committed to seeing um, this come to an end, have to have some commitment to being engaged in it in some way for the rest of our lives as well. So that's just how I see it. You know, um, when you talk about that, that trauma part, can you speak to the importance of serving? Hmm. Um, and ensuring that program for women living with HIV is trauma-informed in that service. Yeah, hold on. I just want to make sure that the fan isn't making too much noise in the mic. Okay, so yes, I live in Atlanta with no air conditioning. Uh, Yeah, I get by. It's all good. I got trees and fan. Um, So service is only a part of the work because I think that the work that we're doing, whether it's in service, whether it's in support, whether it's in partnership, whether it's in learning, even if it's in policy and advocacy, activism, all of what we're doing is about social change. It's all about social justice, right? And so that's how I see it. And the that's how I see the whole epidemic really, that HIV is a virus, but the the world, the whole thing that's considered sort of like an HIV universe, it's about this virus that brings to light so many intersecting issues that we could be working on in silos, but with HIV, we're we're able to create a space to work on a whole bunch of issues at the same time. And by recognizing that, that means that the way trauma is in, it shows up and is engaged, because trauma could be getting an HIV diagnosis, but trauma also that come make that particular type of trauma or moment might come after a series of other kinds of events that have created 
these disruptions in what I or what any individual might have considered their normal pathway. And that that disruption was so intense and so deep and so impactful that it then becomes almost sort of like the virtual part of your DNA, right? And that's why trauma-informed programming, trauma-informed services are also a part of social justice and also a part of social change and are a part of the human rights specter, if you will, or spectrum. And so for me, that's how I look at why everything has to be informed by every part of the lived experience. The way it, and it's, so it's not just trauma, but trauma is just as important. My thing is the service work that we do is not just trauma informed, it's what I call informed by the lived experience, right? Everything that someone has experienced is data. It is indigenous expertise. And that if we don't understand a story, not just one piece of it, not just how you got HIV, not just what you're doing that may put you in a position where you're contracting HIV or what you're doing to be well living with HIV. That's just one tiny piece of it. Trauma is even one tiny piece of it, but those tiny pieces take up big space. And so if we're not dealing with all of the pieces that are taking up space in your story, then we're not actually helping achieve the real thing, which is not just surviving something, but thriving through it and then being able to be your full and whole self, regardless of what lived experiences you're walking with. So creating the programs that are going to help you help anyone find their way to their whole selves, that's what I consider being informed by the lived experience inclusive of trauma. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I'm going to have to apply that part. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Well, let's talk experience. about it. Because because if I, if I look at your own pathway, there are parts to an experience, right, that brought about early pregnancies in your life when you had a plan, right? Mm -hmm. So first, as my Nana would say, uh, man plans while God laughs, right? And so here <laughs> you had this this plan for yourself. I'm going to school. I'm going to have this kind of career. And not that it was traumatic to have your children, but to not be on the path that you thought you were set for, I think had some traumatic effect, right? Yeah, and then absolutely. comes HIV and then comes struggling with all that happens with being a young mother with that. And then along comes your heart saying, hey, you working me too hard and I, I'm not going to keep working for you for a little while until you sit your behind down. So if I know all of that about you, uh, if I know that about you, my question then would be, which should be probably to any woman and any person we're coming across is how do your own traumas, how does your own story inform you? in your practice, in your choices, in how you get engaged or not, because you are that unique. You are in that rare group of people who don't just get through something and keep moving in life. You get through something and then get engaged in that something, right? What is that? How did that <laughs> inform those decisions? Tell me, please. I'm still trying to understand that part. You know, we, you talked about that guy giving peace. Um, 
for me, when it comes to um, just how you broke it down, you know, I did not disclose that I was living with HIV in our interview. I just I realized that in the beginning when I introduced myself, it, it was a second thought. It, but it's, it needed to be said because now if someone watches this, they'll say, OK, she's a cat member. That, that's cute. And then, and then they're like, I wonder why did she get involved in HIV? Right. And then by you mapping out all of my traumas and understanding that for me lets me be able to see it in a healthier way so that I can pull it all together and say, oh, I, I could put this to use. But for me, it, it has never been about me. It has not. I would the moments that I. That's the other, part. I, that's the other the, part. The moments that I try to make it about me, I'm more miserable than anything else. And when I started the work, it it initially started as I'm HIV positive and pregnant at the same time. I only had two weeks to to know that I was HIV positive, and then I found out I was pregnant. So there wasn't much to process, and I was 23. You know, I'm like, all I'm trying to do is go back to school. I just want to finish college. I got two years left. What is this? <laughs> this is not in my plans. God, what is this? This is not right. However, um, I had a friend that I went to high school with that once I had given birth to my daughter, I found out that he had uh, transitioned. He passed away. And I'm like, we're only 22, 23 years old. Well, how did you die? <laughs> And people were whispering and we had a mutual friend from elementary school that disclosed to me that, you know, don't say anything, but he has AIDS. He had AIDS. And I said, okay. And I was devastated. Even though he and I weren't very close, I was devastated because it just didn't make sense. What got to me about that, um, maybe just being a, a, a genuine caregiver someone who just loves to see other people happy and excited about life because I love life within itself. Um, I was regretful in a sense that I did not speak up and share my status where I understood what it meant or what it felt like to be isolated and loved at the same time mm. with HIV. To have a heavy level of self-inflicted stigma, you know, and to not want to be bothered and not want to take medication, but for him to, to know that he had transitioned from uh, this, this virus, it didn't make sense to me. And I said, you know what, there's more to the story. And I found out that he identified as a gay black man mm -hmm. and he had already told his family and friends that, okay, if I decide to be gay, you're telling me I'm going to get HIV. Oh, well, I'm going to live my life. And for me, what was devastating about that is just because you're gay doesn't mean HIV is a part of your demise. It doesn't have to be. And I felt like if he knew that me, a heterosexual Black woman living with HIV and pregnant, that known since elementary school, if he knew that I had HIV, maybe he would still be living. Maybe he and maybe I, but I also think that if he, if I did that, I probably would not have gone public. Mm. Mm -hmm. It yeah. was his death that made me say, oh, he ain't the only one. Something's not right where I live. Yeah. Something's not right about 
other people because if I got it, it means a whole bunch of other people where I live has to have it. I cannot be the only one because okay. I was getting tested regularly. And I found out as I started getting involved because I was angry that something ain't right. <laughs> I found out that where I lived, where I got my first job, where I graduated high school, where I went to elementary school, where I grew up, where I played and dated and met, met people, the zip code for where I lived and the county for where I lived had the highest rate mm-hmm. of newly reported HIV infections for a run of six to seven years. How about that? So that means nobody told us when we were in middle school or high school. Nobody told us. And that's sort of like it may as well have been in the water. That's what people have to understand. It's like you don't have to do anything when there is that kind of what they at at one point called the community viral load. Right. If it's in your community at that level, you don't really have to do anything that anybody else is doing right in order to you know you can actually run up on it even if you're trying to do all the best things for yourself right and let me check myself masonia and do this because um you know maybe too comfortable in the environment that we're in and the conversation we're having and the organization that we're doing this in in uh, in light of and and in, in partnership with but it should have been you to disclose your status and not me. And I have to check myself on that and apologize because I know you and that you would, you know, find your way to be all right with it, but I shouldn't have. And I think that that's a lesson for everybody, but this consciousness that you also just raised is that I think we've been in this so long and that we're so comfortable in our own skin and in our own spaces and talking about this, that we actually forget that for some people, disclosure is still a major issue and that we have to be respectful of anyone and everyone because your story is your story and it should be you who gets to tell that. So I want to make sure that I've checked myself on that. And um, and I thank you for your grace uh, in acknowledging that. And, but guess uh, and what? Thank you for your story. That means that we're in a safe space. And for you to feel safe enough to do that lets me know where my leadership lies as well. Because that's one thing that I have reiterated um, across the board for that means how I'm showing up is the way that I've been wanting to show up as a leader, meaning that I have made sure that people know that it is okay for you to use me because that is where and my why my why has been that if you don't want to speak up, you don't want to show your face, you don't want to talk about your things, use me, use me as your example, please, I beg you. Because that's the part that's missing where we don't see and hear. That that was the part that was missing for me. I needed, I needed to see Mm -hmm. and and know that I am not in a 1% category with this. Yes. I needed not to feel alone. I needed, if I was going to be the only one, let me be the last one. That's where I was with that. So I thank you for um, honoring me. But this space right here is so safe. And I think that, um, the, there's purpose behind what's being said and therefore it's not being abused and it's not being misused. So I'm fully, fully okay. And I know who I'm with. <laughs> I know who I'm with. I, I'm, I'm I love fully you. okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. My heart is full from that. Um, the fact that you remember and you know and you acknowledge and I think that's also a part of the trauma-informed care part. 
Um, trauma-informed care has been uh, on my radar for the last three years. The word trauma has only been uh, in my vernacular as far as me utilizing it personally for the last two and a half years. I never used the word trauma or trigger prior to. I never acknowledged HIV as a trauma Mm-hmm. until just three years ago and it's been 10 years I've been living with HIV now and once I had to go hmm that's interesting I also adopted um HIV is violent and abusive mm-hmm. and that's where some of the trauma kind of explodes and implodes in some ways and I think that by knowing that I'm seen and I'm heard And that what I'm saying and doing are not in vain is what you just gifted to me by being able to map out. Okay, well, let's let's lay this out. How and why do you do this? Um, Yeah, I think. (laughs) Can I say thank you again? (laughs) Uh, Gratitude is. Love feeling loved. So, yes. So I know we talked about um, your work here in Atlanta and briefly um repeat Uzi Uzi wait how do you say the mother house and oh, um Umzi, the love house Umzi Umzi U-M-Z-I Umzi mm-hmm. O W O Tondo T-H-A-N-D-O Umzi Wotando Umzi Wotando okay mm. so in Umzi Wotando mm-hmm how can you does well not just how but in what ways would you describe how your work there informs your work here or vice versa like do you see any differences and similarities all of that yeah it's all the things (laughs) seriously so you know even when we first got started doing that work in South Africa uh, that actually what preceded that was the work that we had made a decision and an intentional decision to work internationally, or at least I did, because in starting Sister Love in the late 80s, there weren't a whole lot of other organizations like us, right? There was, I think Iris House was a little bit older than us, but that was almost mostly about housing at that time and in New York. And can't compare what we were dealing with in Atlanta with what they were dealing with in New York. Even the routes of transmission were different, right? There were more people who were exposed through injecting needles or injecting drug, using drugs with needles than the folks who were getting it more through heterosexual relationships in our region. Um, and then there was CalPEP, which was focused almost solely on uh, people who are sex workers, including um, cisgender and transgender people. And so the most likely spaces to find folks who were similar to those of us in the South was in the international arena, it was in Africa even. And so we made an effort to be a part of all of the reproductive rights meetings and all the women's meetings to make sure that the HIV issue was resonating in those spaces. And it actually wasn't, we were bringing it to those spaces. And so I had met Prudence Mabeli years before we even started working in South Africa and fell in love with her the minute we met and we had just promised that we were gonna work together at some point. Here's, Here's what I learned once we got together and started working in South Africa is that we all have something to learn from each other. That one was, 
okay, let's recognize, let's acknowledge, and let's celebrate our differences. But if we can sit and tell our stories and come up and learn from each other's solutions, then uh, that's where we find our work in common. And that's what we do. So the answer is yes. I find that there's lots of things that we can learn because there are a few distinctive differences or distinctive experiences and conditions on the ground in South Africa that are kind of different from us here. But there are also things that are very much the same, even if they're the scale of the experience might not be. So South Africa, for example, still, still is the epicenter of HIV in the world, still to this day. It's, you know, batty back and forth every now and then. Sometimes it was India, sometimes it was Brazil. South Africa has almost always been the number one um, highest incidence of HIV in the world. Also having the highest number of women living with HIV in the world. Also now, being one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous country for a woman to live, right? So learn from that, right? Because while we might not be the most of it all, we still have it all, right? The, mm -hmm. the deep South is still the epicenter of the epidemic in the US. The Black women in the South still carry the burden of the epidemic in the US. The gender-based violence that goes along with HIV in so many different communities is still pretty prevalent in the South. And then you can compound that with the Black maternal mortality rates, and you can compound that with the high infant, uh, the perinatal or vertical transmission rates that you remember all of these stories we were dealing with in Georgia. So all of these things are really concomitant. But let me tell you what I've learned. Uh, what we have learned is that the resistance is the, is the power of the resilience. So the resilience piece is something that we can talk about all the time, and we deal with that here. But the resistance, because this, the people in South Africa will still toy toy for anything. You, you know, here you step on a toe, you in a fight, you might even be, if you're in a club, you might even get shot. There you step on a toe and you're going to be toy toyed against. You have just violated my human rights and I'm going to march and protest. So there's it's ingrained in them to fight for change, period. And what I find challenging to learn from that and bring it home is how do we get everybody in that mode to say, this impacts all of us and we all have to fight for this change. So that's the one thing. And I think uh, also in, involved in that is how important it is for them to approach things intersectionally because they can't afford not to. Adolescent girls and young women are the predominant population of people impacted by HIV in Sub-Saharan Africa, writ large across any group. And if you think about education attainment, if you think about the level of inequality and poverty, you think about the different cultural things, practices that are involving young women and girls, and then you compound that with gender-based violence and HIV, you cannot address one issue versus the other. You have to figure out a way to do all of it. And so that's when I adopted, well, women, even here, we live intersectional lives. So our responses need to be intersectional as well. So that I think is also one of the bigger 
biggest important things that we've learned. And I think what we've shared the most is that um, you don't accept the status quo, right? That's what we, that's, I think that's a part of what we've shared in that if it's not being provided for you, you can build it yourself. And that I think is something that uh, women are, have learned in a different kind of way. Not that they weren't organized. I mean, like Prudence Mabelli, she had her organization in the early 90s, not that long after Sister Love. But the sense that because women are consistently told about who's supposed to be leading. I worked with so many organizations in South Africa where there were, all the women were working and in instances voluntarily, like full time, and the men were running everything. And even when they started getting income into those organizations, the men would pay themselves. There might be a new pickup truck in the driveway of the office, but the women were still not getting paid. When the women were running things, everybody got a little something, even if it wasn't much. That I think is something that we were able to share to say that we can all run this stuff. We do not have to wait for somebody else to do it. And I have seen so many organizations by young women and other women start to grow and pop up in South Africa. It has just filled me, not that I had anything to do with it, just to think that Sister Love in partnership with some of these groups, um, we actually helped a group get off the ground in South Africa when we first started working down there because we wanted it to be there. And so how do we help you get there? This was the Society for Women and AIDS in Africa. We supported that. And I'm still proud that we did that. Wow, that is so dope. I didn't even, I didn't know about the, um, that second part. Um, I think that, um, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of work. <laughs> and you talk, you know, when you brought up um, the fact that I experienced a heart attack and having to sit down, I promise you, if you knew how much you use your heart, if you only knew how much you use your heart, <laughs> I wonder if you would say no, and I don't think so. You'd be just like me trying to fight to get back up again. <laughs> like, nah, heart, let's go. We got some more we're trying to do. We had some plans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> got to get some stuff done. But yeah, wow. So as a well-known leader, one as, as a well-known leader across the board, not just as a woman, but as a well-known leader in the field of HIV and women and reproductive justice, can you describe your leadership style? And if you have any tips for emerging leaders? So I'm sure I've had to think about this and answer it before. <laughs> but uh, so my leadership style tends to be and I don't I don't think of it so much as leading from behind. But the first thing about my leadership style is uh, knowing myself, knowing my issues. That's the first thing, most, most important. And when I say knowing my issues, I mean knowing what I'm good at and what I'm not good at and being okay with that. That's the first thing. I do not just, a leader does not have to be better than anybody. A leader does not have to be greater than anybody. A leader doesn't have to be higher than anybody. A leader just has to be able to, have ideas, have a vision, communicate that vision, and have other people who share that vision join in the work to achieve that vision. That's, that's my 
that's my approach to it. I don't know if that's a style, but that's my approach to it. It is actually and a style. And, and if you haven't bought into it, I'll just sit it down and I'll wait. I don't just go, well, it's my idea and I'm going to run. You can ask people at Sister Love. There are so many things that I have mentioned five, seven years ago, months ago. And then somebody will say, well, I think we should be doing so-and-so-and-so. I don't say I told you so. Sometimes nowadays I go, oh, that's a great idea. I wonder where that came from, that kind of thing. But um, so that's one. And then the other thing I think that's important is, as you've already said it, it is never about me. If it's about anything, it's about if, if there's any kind of first person in anything that I do, it's we. That's actually one of my preferred pronouns. She, her, we. Right. So. Um, it has to be centering the work that you do where the pain or where the experience of whatever the social change, the injustice, whatever it is that you're working on, that you center the people, the folks, the lived beings that are experiencing that particular issue in everything. Because the minute you forget that they're the center, you're forgetting what your purpose and you're forgetting the work. So that that's the other part. And I and the other side of it, which is sort of the down part of it, is my other leadership style is I just give people a rope. So in other words, I don't. Um, nobody truly gets left behind, but you can check yourself out. So there are folks for me who I'm not going to go all in and chastise and try to change. you. That's it. I'm not going to change anyone. People change themselves. I am um, I am that type that says, OK, that's your issue and I've gone this far and now you have to take it the rest of the way. So here's the rope. And when you're in a hole, you have some choices what to do with that rope. You can pull yourself up out that hole or you can hang yourself with it or you can drop off that rope and fall to the bottom of it. But what you have to know is, is that whatever you decide to do with that rope, I will be at the other end, but it is up to you to decide what to do with that rope. So that's where I am. And that's how I do. So, you know, what's interesting about that is when I do talk to uh, a lot of people and they bring you up and I say, oh, you know what? I can describe to you exactly what Dazon's leadership style is. And this is just coming from the scholarly side of me from studying leadership in school. Yeah. Um, you are a visionary leader. When there, I mean, there's over uh, 12 different styles of leadership out there. But if I had to choose one based on what you just said and just um, being in your presence over time and watching you, you are a visionary leader. And that's what visionary like, leaders do. And so I think that um, that's where most leadership starts with the vision. Yeah. Not everyone has that part. And that's where the shared leadership has to come into play, too. Right. So with that, I know we're coming on time right now. Um, I have one last question for you. And then if there were any other final thoughts after that. And this question is kind of loaded, but I think you got it. I think you may already have said it in some ways. What do you hope will be your legacy overall? So let me step back first and say that 
I don't argue with you on the visionary leader. Uh, I'm that sometimes to a fault. And that's only because since I've been a kid, I have this, I, I, I always call it noise. I have this noise in my head, which is just nonstop ideas, nonstop. My mother said, can you just turn it off? Nope. So I have to write them down just to get them out of my head nonstop. I come up with crazy stuff all the time to solve problems because I'm a problem solver. So that's it. I'm a problem solver. And so there's always thinking of how to fix something. So that's that. I actually call myself an ideas maven with a lust for innovating justice. That's my thing. So if there's anything that is uh, some kind of legacy is that. Thank um, you for listening to the Wall Project's Leadership Exchange had podcast. an idea. You can watch and listen to more episodes on our website. That was sustainable. Backslash to help us exchange. get to the That's all Please I want. Sure Somebody to, subscribe to our YouTube she was channel a part of this and win. follow us on social media. I, don't, I didn't do the win. I didn't make the win. Just to just to know that I was a part of something that changed and made something better for not just somebody, but somebody. That's that's it. I I really want something that I've been fighting my entire life to actually have made a difference for somebody's. And that's all I need. She, her, we. I think I'm I'm going to utilize that last pronoun when I uh, when I put in my, my Zoom and introduce myself. It feels that, good. Uh, yeah, I use we a lot. You know, I, uh-huh. I, when I'm doing certain work, I'll make sure I say well we or us. You know, um, and yeah. and I don't use I often. Right. I try to make sure I generalize things when I'm talking about Beautiful. the community. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that right there is extremely useful and powerful and shifting. I, I, and I know I am up against time, but I did let them know I'd be a little late. So I'm now a little late. I just want to tell you this one thing, this, this last story, and then I want your feedback to it. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think the we, even if I don't use the pronoun, this is where I think the we um, comes through in my and I guess who I am and how I show up. So I was at a, I can remember where it was, the last, the U.S. conference on HIV and AIDS that was in San Diego. And there was a side meeting of all of these different people who were uh, being trained in some new uh, educational tools that one of our pharma partners was training everybody. 85, 90% of the people in the room were all people, all walks, um, but were all people living with HIV. And I was doing a part of the training. And somewhere in there, I must have said that uh, as a person uh, who's, who's not living with HIV in my body, I live with HIV in my life, right? And the whole room got super quiet. And one sister, she spoke up. She said, Dazon, are you telling me you're not living with HIV? You're not HIV positive. And I said, no, I'm not. And I, I didn't take it any other way than to be honest and transparent. I said, no, I'm not. The whole room was like, what? All these years, all this time, we thought you were HIV positive. I couldn't do anything but cry because can I tell you that there is no greater affirmation than that. 
I, I don't even want to go deeper into what that means, but there is no greater affirmation than somebody who is going through it. That wow, who and however I am, that it was relatable enough, it was real enough, it was close enough, it was peer feeling enough for people to think that I was living the same experience. And if that's the only legacy I have, I could die tonight. I'm not kidding you. Okay, that brought me to tears. <laughs> me too. So I don't know what that meant to the people in the room, but I can tell you what that meant to me. That's that's huge. Um, I know for me, I get the opposite. I get the opposite. So um, it's probably going to take me some time to process. Um, what do you mean by you get the opposite? Um, no matter how I show up and when I show up, 90% of the time people don't think I have HIV, even when I show up as a peer. When I go to the doctor's office and people see me, they think I work there. Um, they think that I'm a pharmaceutical rep if I'm dressed up. When I go to meetings, um, they they rarely think or know that I'm living with HIV. And when they see the posters, um, they assume that the other person in the poster is the person that's positive. And it's always like I have to nearly convince someone uh, that no, you, you, you just don't want to believe it maybe. I don't know, but oftentimes then not people believe that I'm not the one that's living with HIV. They think I just do the work. And I say, I, I do just do the work. And um, people who are my peers, they don't expect me, especially if they're, if I'm just meeting them, they never expect that I too have it with them ever. So um, I think that, <laughs> in exchange of doing the work, the stigma behind HIV weighs heavy on both ends of the spectrum, but to be um, honored in such a way, I think that right there is uh, beautiful because there's so many people who want to say, I, I'm not, I don't have HIV. I just work in it, you know? Yeah. And to, to be affirmed in that way, I think that is so beautiful. It, it's it's definitely a testament to the work that you're doing ongoing. And I do get that question from people. They ask me, are you living with HIV? When they ask me about you or, you know, and I say, to my knowledge and to this day, Dazon still affirms that she's still HIV negative. And, um, and they're still surprised then too. So that's just the, the moments behind uh, when we're not speaking and talking, you're still brought up and spoke of highly um, and admired. And they always wonder what's your why. They always wonder what's your why. 
because I'm here. <laughs> and, and if I may, because I understand exactly what you're saying and what I think happens is that you have normalized it so well in yourself, in your energy, in your life. You have normalized what it means to be this person, this young Black woman raising children, doing work, taking care of my own health the best way I can, and showing up for people that you have normalized it so much that that's the last thing that they think of that you're struggling with. That's, that's what I think. So I also think that that's an affirmation. And I think that's a testament to what HIV should look like in anybody. It should look like a Masonia who makes it so that you don't even know because you don't have to know I'm just here. Yeah, I think people forget often too. Yeah, a lot of my family and my friends, they know I do the work, but they forget. They li they literally forget, but mm -hmm. I don't. I want it to be gone. <laughs> to right, say right, I want right, it to right. go away. <laughs> but yeah. um, you know, um this leadership exchange, I did not expect it to. Uh, me um, me, but, you know, <laughs> I'm a bag of water. Squeeze me. Yeah, that I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. Same thing. Same thing. I'm I, what my mom they, she says. I have uh, alligator tears, <laughs> uh, crocodile tears. But I think that um, this was really, really a farmer for me in multiple ways. And um, when I look at your background, I think about the Sankofa bird looking back to move forward. Um, a lot of times people say, don't look back, just keep going forward. But how do you know where you're going if you don't know where you came from? And I do know that as a part of my journey and a part of my personal legacy, my goal is to focus on helping women living with HIV secure their legacies. Yes. And um, the epidemic around Black women and HIV is one that I hope to uh, see in my lifetime um, where we're in it until the last one. And part of the work that you do and have done and continue to do, I get to look back on it so that I can move forward. So I thank you. I love you. I honor you. I respect you. And I look forward to maybe a, a part two of our leadership exchange with the World Project. <laughs> I would love it. Yes. So thank you so much, Dazon, for um, agreeing to do this with us. Um, I'll just go ahead and close out with my name is Masanya Trailer. I'm a community advisory board member, mother of two, uh, black woman, cisgender, living with HIV. And I've been living with HIV for 10 years. And um, my pronouns are now she, her, and we. I thank you guys so much for joining. Thank you so much, Dayton. It's been my absolute pleasure and privilege. Thank you for listening to the Wall Project's Leadership Exchange Podcast. You can watch and listen to more episodes on our website, thewellproject.org backslash exchange. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on social media.